Father in heaven. In this first lesson of our second year of our continuing study of the book of Revelation, we are going to quickly review the first three chapters which we studied in significant detail last year. Now this review is not only for the benefit of those of you who are new to our ministry and our study, but it is also for the benefit of the rest of us because it's been quite some time since we have been together and I don't think a refresher course will not benefit any of us. We need to refocus our attention on the book which presents for us the exciting climax of history. Revelation is the 66th and therefore the final book in the Bible. It is the only prophetic book in the New Testament which stands in contrast to 17 prophetic books found in the Old Testament. Within its God-inspired pages, we find the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find him not as the gentle lamb and the suffering servant he was at his first coming but rather as the judging lion and the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, as he shall be seen by all at his yet future second coming. The book is a revelation or an apocalypsis. It is an unveiling, which is what the word apocalypsis in the Greek means. It's an unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ who is revealed to us in his full glory and power and majesty. Verse 1 of chapter 1 makes it very clear that it is the revelation. And notice that is singular, not the revelations. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is not the revelation of St. John the Divine, as some Bible editors have erroneously labeled the book. Now, this revelation or unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ was given by God the Father to Jesus Christ, God the Son, who sent it by way of an angel to John, the last living apostle. And the purpose of the book is given to us in its very first verse. It is to show unto his, speaking of Christ's servants, in other words, to show unto believers things which must shortly, and the word shortly means quickly or suddenly, come to pass. Thus, the purpose of the book is to show God's people the unveiled glory of Christ and the things of the future before they actually occur. The emphasis of Revelation, then, is the person of the Lord Jesus and his future program for the world. Sadly, there are a number of people who avoid studying the book of Revelation. Now, we know, of course, that unbelievers don't study it, because to them, if they would open the pages of the book and read, they would just think it was utter foolishness because without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who takes up his residence in those who do place their faith in Christ I'd have to admit that without his enlightening ministry and teaching ministry the book of Revelation would appear as wild and foolish after all it does speak of all kinds of strange events such as the sun the stars and the moon being darkened one third of the greenery on planet earth being burned up at one particular time all kinds of waters uh, the fresh water and the salt waters turning to blood it also speaks of weird beasts such as scorpion type locusts who have hair like women and faces like men and teeth like lions. And the book speaks about a woman clothed with the sun, delivering a man-child and then being attacked by a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. And it speaks about another beast who's empowered by the great red dragon. And this beast looks like a seven-headed leopard with feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. And it talks about a great whore, a harlot, who sits upon many waters, and she also sits upon the red dragon. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet, and she's decked out with all kinds of gold and precious stones and pearls. And she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. 
It speaks about the Lord himself coming out of heaven and destroying his enemies gathered together in the valley of Megiddo, and he destroys them simply with the word of his mouth. And the book also talks about the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. And then it proceeds to describe a place which surpasses the imaginations of even the most creative minds on earth. So, revelation to the unbeliever sounds kind of like a Saturday morning science fiction cartoon. But the real tragedy is that even many Christians avoid studying the book of Revelation. I've actually heard Christians say that they will return to this Bible study when we teach something else. But that Revelation simply cannot be understood because there are just too many interpretations to it. And I've heard others tell me that they just don't like studying prophecy. So that when we when we start studying something else, they said they'll come back. But they don't like prophecy. And, and that really is just too bad. It's too bad because for one thing, one-fourth of the Bible is prophetic. So these people are missing out on one-fourth of God's holy word. And for another thing, it's too bad that they missed out on our study last year of church history simply because they don't like prophecy. Our study of church history was very, very beneficial. On the other hand, some Christians don't study Revelation simply because they've been told that it isn't prophetic. So we have the other side of the spectrum here. You know, perhaps their pastor or their denomination has told them that the book has nothing whatsoever to do with the future, that everything it discusses has already been fulfilled, and therefore the book has little benefit for the believer today, so they'd be far better off studying something else in the Scripture, the epistles or the Gospels or something. But Whatever reason Christians give for not studying the last book in the Bible, they are wrong for avoiding it. Now, how can I stand here and be so arrogant and and say that they are wrong? Well, the reason I can say that is because the Bible itself tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable for four things. Number one, for doctrine. Two, for reproof. Three, for our correction. And four, for instruction in righteousness. God has given us the entire 66 books of the Bible so that we may be made perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, does that include the book of Revelation? Yes, that includes the book of Revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now, this means that we shouldn't pick and choose what portions of God's word we are going to take seriously enough to study or which portions uh, we will choose to avoid. The entire Bible was inspired by God Almighty for our profit. To avoid, for example, prophecy just because one doesn't like it is to cut off, as I said, one quarter of God's holy word. Revelation reveals God's plan for the future. And understanding the future truly does help us to live more effectively and meaningful, meaningfully for today. More significantly, however, is the fact that this book is not just the revelation of future events. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember that first verse? There is no way that we can divorce the person from the prophetic program. Because without the person of Christ, there would be no fulfillment of God's prophetic program for the world. We must remember that the Lord Jesus is the chief subject as well as the author of this book. He's also the exalted high priest in this book who ministers to his church as we saw in chapters 2 and 3. And he's the final judge of all those who have infiltrated his church with their false teachings. He's also the glorified Lamb of God who reigns from heaven's throne 
in chapters 4 and 5, which we'll be looking at shortly in a couple weeks. He is the rightful judge of wicked men who have been deceived by Satan in chapters 6 to 18, which spell out for us the period of seven years called the Tribulation. He's also the conquering King of Kings and Lord of Lords of chapter 19. And he's the beloved bridegroom who ushers his bride, the church, into the magnificent heavenly city where she will dwell with him throughout all of eternity. So to avoid a study of Revelation is to avoid a wonderful opportunity to know its author better. And to know him better is to love him more. And to love him more is to serve him more wholeheartedly, which is really the reason that the Lord has left us here on earth once we have come to know him with saving faith. Now, another reason Christians should study Revelation is because it is the book which culminates, it ends a great many uh, Bible doctrines. It culminates the circle of Bible truths. It completes the great truths and the doctrines of Scripture which were begun as far back as Genesis and other Old Testament Scripture passages. For example, it tells us about the church. Of course, that wasn't begun in in Genesis, but it tells us all about the church and what will happen with her. She was a mystery in the Old Testament, unknown to the Old Testament writers. But we find out about the end of the church and her future in in eternity, in the eternal state. And we find out about the resurrection of the saints. And we find out about the Great Tribulation period, the Tribulation and the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years of the seven-year Tribulation. And this was mentioned all the way back as early as Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 30 and 31. It tells us about the end of Satan. And all God's people said, Amen to that. It tells us about the end of the man of sin, better known as the Antichrist. And it tells us about the end of false religion, which was started as far back as the Tower of Babel, as well as telling us about the consummation of the times of the Gentiles, which we learned about in the book of Daniel. And it tells us about the second coming of Christ. Now, we did mention last year the fact that there are many interesting comparisons between the first and the last books of the Bible, between Genesis and Revelation. Genesis, for example, tells us how it came about that man lost his chance to eat of the tree of life. Revelation, on the other hand, shows us that redeemed man will yet eat of that tree of life. Genesis tells us about man's first rebellion against God, whereas Revelation tells us about man's final rebellion against God. Genesis reveals the tragic sorrow that resulted from sin, while Revelation promises the end of all sorrow for God's children because he himself shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Genesis introduced Satan for the very first time as the tempter of man, and Revelation shows his final doom. In Genesis, the earth was purged by a flood, a worldwide global flood. In Revelation, the new earth will be purified by fire. In Genesis, man's city of Babel or Babylon was built. In Revelation, man's city Babylon is destroyed and the new Jerusalem, God's city, is established. The first chapters of Genesis describe for us a sinless world We all know that. A sinless world which God made for man and woman and which he placed under man's dominion. Even though sin and the resulting curse have intruded this world for a time, yet God will not ultimately be defeated in his purpose. All that he intended originally for man and for the world will ultimately be accomplished. The earth will be restored to its original perfection. As a matter of fact, all nature is groaning for its redemption. 
which one day will come to pass. Sin and the curse will be removed. There will no longer be thorns on rose bushes and weeds and gardens and wrinkles on faces. And death will cease to exist. So will the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is in a state of declining and decay. So these are the exciting conclusions regarding God's redemptive plan for mankind and for the earth that we will be reading about and learning about in the book of Revelation. Actually, you know, some people say, well, the book of Revelation is just too weird and you can't understand it. But did you realize that two-thirds of the book of Revelation contains quotations or allusions to the Old Testament scriptures? Two-thirds of the book. So really, there is nothing strange about the book. It is merely the consummation and the capstone of God's program for history. Without it, without the book of Revelation... The Bible would be an unfinished book. And you don't want to buy a book that doesn't have the last chapter in it. You wouldn't want to study a book without the concluding chapter. Now yet another reason, or I hope you wouldn't, another reason why Christians should not avoid studying Revelation is because of the fact that it is the only book in the Bible which begins in Revelation 1-3 and ends, Revelation 22-7, by promising a special blessing on, on those who study it. That blessing is a promise from God for those who study it and heed the words of this book. So that's a very good reason to study it. God has promised a blessing for those who do. And it is the only book which ends by promising a special curse on those who add or take away from it. And actually, that's a, a reference to the, to the whole Bible as well. We find that in 22, 18, and 19. 22 verse, chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. So it's very tragic, I believe, that many churches and many Christians have done exactly what God has told them not to do. In Revelation 22.10, God said, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. This was unlike his instructions to the prophet Daniel, who was told to seal his divinely inspired writings until the time of the end. Daniel 12.4. But Revelation was not to be a sealed book. John was specifically told not to seal the sayings of the prophecy of this book, and yet that's exactly what many pulpits and many denominations have done. They have sealed the book to the sheep of their flocks by not teaching it and by not encouraging them to study it on their own. Now, an important issue which we discussed last year in much more detail than I'm going to be able to do now, was the issue of interpretation. And for those of you who missed Lessons 2 and 3 last year, I strongly recommend that you either pick up the notes or the cassette tapes on these two very critical studies, because in them we discussed the pros and the cons of each of the four primary ways in which the book of Revelation has been interpreted. Without a basic understanding of these four schools of interpretation, you may get very confused when you hear or read interpretations of Revelation which disagree with what you are going to be taught here in this study. And there is a reason for this, and it is because of these four different methods of interpreting the book, the four different schools of interpretation. Now, I'm going to briefly explain them today, but as I said, for further details, please refer back to lessons number two and three. The four schools of interpretation are the idealist or the allegorical school, the preterist school, the historicist school, and the futuristic school. Now, first of all, the idealist school views the book of Revelation as an allegory. That's why it's also referred to sometimes as the allegorical method of interpreting the scripture or revelation and other eschatological scriptures. Eschatological has to do with end times events. The idealist school states that everything in the book of Revelation should be taken figuratively. 
because the Apostle John was merely writing about a spiritual conflict between good, represented by Christianity, and evil, of course, represented by Satan and his wicked forces. And this school does not, they say, have, they say that the book of Revelation does not have anything at all to do with actual physical experiences of the future. Now, the problem with the idealist view is that it loses all of the details of the book. Details are either ignored or they're cast aside as fictional stories or unimportant symbol pictures. And the real danger of this approach of interpretation is that the authority in interpreting ceases to be the words, the actual words of the Word of God. But the authority becomes instead the mind of the interpreter. The idealist school denies that Revelation predicts the future in any detail and does not see any literal fulfillment in the events described by the Apostle John. Now, because we in this ministry, the Living Word Ladies Bible Study, because we do believe that every word of Scripture is God-inspired, all Scripture is inspired of God, God, and therefore... All scripture is important, every word. And because we also believe in a God who can very easily predict the future, he knows the end from the beginning, as he has proven over and over again by a 100% accuracy rate on already fulfilled prophecy. Because of those two things, we will not be using the idealist method of interpretation for our study of Revelation. A second school of interpretation is the preterist method or approach. And this view teaches that Revelation is a description of the problems and the persecutions which the early church experienced. They say that the judgments of the book are the judgments of God which were to fall upon the Romans in order to vindicate their horrible persecution of the early Christians, 1st and 2nd century. So preterists teach that all of the events of Revelation have already occurred, and they occurred back in the 1st and 2nd centuries A.D. Now again, this view, as was true of the idealist or the allegorical view, is anti-supernatural because it denies the ability of Revelation's author to predict the future. Most liberal and neo-orthodox theologians hold to this view which is why so many seminaries and pulpits today virtually ignore the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. One of the main problems with this view is that none of the Roman emperors ever turned out to be the Antichrist. And furthermore, the judgments which occur in the book of Revelation have never, ever occurred to the global magnitude and the detail which are given in the book. Now, another school of interpretation for Revelation is known as the Historicist School. Adherence to this method of interpretation consider Revelation to be a symbolic presentation of the whole of church history. So they claim that the judgments which are described in chapters 6 to 18 of Revelation have been actually continually happening for some 2,000 years now. The problem is, though, that the book of Revelation, as well as the book of Daniel, completely refutes this teaching by stating very clearly that the events in the chapters of chapters 6 to 18 will take place in a seven-year period, not in a 2,000-plus-year period. Another problem is that there are very few historicists who agree with one another in their interpretations of the various features and details of Revelation. They seldom ever agree on the historical incident which they say, which one or another of them would say, supposedly fulfilled each successive prophecy in the book of Revelation. Now there are are several other major problems with this view which 
you were given in our study last year. So again, you know, you may wish to review the end of lesson number two for those reasons, which I just simply do not have the time to explain all over again right now in this Revelation review, jet tour through chapters one, two, and three. Well, the fourth main school of interpretation for the book of Revelation is known as the futurist view. The futurist method of interpreting Revelation and all other eschatological prophecies of Scripture, those having to do with the end times, the futurist method is the only one of the four main schools of interpretation which takes a literal approach to the words of Scripture. The idealist, the preterist, and the historicist, all of those views in one way or another alter They change the original meaning of the actual words in the book of Revelation in order to support their particular theory. The futurist, however, believes that when the plain sense of the scripture makes common sense, then he should seek no other sense. Also, of course, they take into consideration that when something is obviously a figure of speech or a symbol or a parable, or an allegory, then he uses the scripture itself to determine the meaning, particularly of a symbol. Now, those who get confused about Revelation because they say they don't understand what this symbol means or what that symbol means, they do so because they forget that God is his own interpreter. Genesis 40, verse 8 tells us, or states, Do not interpretations belong to God? And the obvious answer, it's a rhetorical question, is yes, interpretations belong to God. Many of the symbols of the book of Revelation and other Uh, prophetic scriptures, especially apocalyptic scriptures, are actually interpreted for us. Sometimes in the very book in which they're mentioned. Many of the ones that we'll find in Revelation are interpreted for us right in the book of Revelation. And when they are not explained in the same book, then many of their interpretations are found in other books of the Bible. So the fact is that the scripture interprets its own symbols and it leaves very little room to the imaginations of men to devise their own explanations, which can sometimes get very wild. So futurists then not only believe that the prophecies of Revelation are to be taken literally, but they also believe that the scripture is to be used to interpret the scripture. What this means is that the futurist understands that the judgments of God spelled out for us in the book of Revelation are actually literally to be poured out upon this earth in a literal specific seven year period and that those judgments will cause the devastation to the magnitude in which they are described in the book. When it says one-third of the earth, it means one-third of the earth. Now, because the futuristic view gives a very reasonable and methodical and simple approach to interpreting Revelation, and because it is the only method which interprets the words, the actual words of Scripture literally, yet, of course, not blindly ruling out symbols, because of that, it is the only safe check on the imaginations of man because it grounds interpretation in fact instead of in man's imagination. So futurists see most of the book of Revelation as yet future. That, of course, is where their name comes from. In fact, even most of chapters 2 and 3, which deal with the seven churches, and as we learned last year, presented us an amazingly accurate prophecy of church history. Even those two chapters were yet future at the time the book was given to John to write. Because, of course, he was just living in the very early stage of church history. Now, yet another reason that we will be using the futurist view of interpreting Revelation is because none of the events which take place in the book after chapter 3 have ever yet occurred in history. That's a very logical reason to be a futurist. You know, even the two world wars of the 20th century did not combine to destroy one half of the world's population. 
as we will discover happens in the tribulation period. So none of the events after chapter 3 have occurred in history. Now many people have thought and many people have taught that the book of Revelation is almost impossible to outline. However, when one comes to this book with the futuristic view of interpretation, you know, the view that takes the very words of the scripture seriously and literally, he finds that he doesn't have any need to develop his own outline. He doesn't have to try to come up with his own outline because the outline for the entire book was provided by Christ himself who gave it to John right there in chapter 1, verse 19. Remember, we told you how important that verse is last year, so circle it if you would, if you didn't, if you weren't here last year. Key verse in the scripture because it gives us the outline for the book of Revelation. Now, John who we speculate had to have been somewhere in his 90s, had been put in exile on the deserted isle of Patmos, located about 25 miles off the mainland of Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. And he had been banished there because of his faith in Jesus Christ and, of course, his testimony, his bold testimony for Christ. We learned that in chapter 1, verse 9. And it was while he was suffering for the Lord on that rugged, lonely rock of an island that the resurrected, glorified Christ appeared to him and spoke to him the very important words which we find in chapters 1 through 3. Well, after assuring the frightened John, John, of course, when he saw the vision of Christ before him, fell down at the Lord's feet as though dead. We'll talk about that in a little while. But after the Lord assured John of his identity, he then gave him a critical assignment. John was told in verse 19 of chapter 1 to, first of all, write the things which he had seen. And that, of course, is the contents of chapter 1. John's vision, what he had just seen of the glorified Christ as he was standing there in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. Secondly, John was to write the things which are. And because John was living in the time known as the church age, this part of his assignment dealt with the Lord's seven letters written to the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3. Those seven churches spell out for us the church age. And third, John was told to write about the things which shall be hereafter. And that third category speaks of all of the events following the seven church letters of chapters 2 and 3. So, the hereafter things deal with the contents of chapters 4 to the end of the book, which is chapter 22, chapters 4 to chapter 22. Now, since we are today still in the period of time known as the church age, the events of chapters 4 to 22 are yet future. Very logical to figure all of that out. So the outline that we are using for our study of Revelation is based upon the outline given to John by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in chapter 1, verse 19. We will be looking at, well, I shouldn't say we will be looking at, we have already covered the first part, the person of Jesus Christ, and we find that in chapter 1, that correlates to the things thou hast seen, the first part of Christ's commandment. To John, And then we also covered the possession of Jesus Christ, part 2, found in chapters 2 and 3, corresponding to the second part of Christ's instruction to John, the things that are, that he was to write the things which are. And thirdly, what we have not yet looked at is the program of Jesus Christ, and that will carry us from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 22 correlates to the things which shall be hereafter. So very simply we have a three part outline, the person of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, the possession of Jesus Christ, chapters 2 and 3 and the program of Jesus Christ, chapters 4 to 22. Now although we only got through chapter 3 last year if you look at this optimistically, we really have covered two thirds of our general outline for this entire book because we discussed John's vision of Christ in chapter 1, the person of Jesus Christ, and then we covered the seven church letters in chapters 2 and 3, the possession of Jesus Christ. So actually, uh, we've covered two-thirds of our outline. All we have left is the discussion of chapters 4 to 22, (laughs) which have to do with a yet future program of Jesus Christ.
But of course, you know, this is by far the longest part of the book, so we do have a ways to go yet. Now, we're going to begin with chapter 4 next week, but for the remainder of this lesson, this Revelation review, I do want to very quickly review the chapter 1 vision of Christ and then the seven church letters of chapters 2 and 3. And this is going to be very brief compared to what we did last year when we took these three chapters and looked at them verse by verse in intricate detail. In the salutation of Revelation, which is in chapters 1, verses 4 to 8, we learn that the original recipients of this message were the seven churches of Asia Minor, which, of course, we learn much more about in chapters 2 and 3. Now, the number 7, which in the scripture symbolizes perfection and completion, appears many, many times in the book of Revelation. Uh, We learn about seven angels with seven trumpets, seven seals, seven bowl judgments, seven horns, seven heads, all kinds of sevens all over the book of Revelation and multiples of seven, by the way, also. But this is the very first time we see this number when it's referring to the seven churches of Asia Minor in verse 4. Now, the seven churches were chosen because they symbolically represent the complete church of Christ. The number seven speaks of completion. They also represent all churches everywhere throughout the church age. The church age began on the day of Pentecost, and it will continue until the rapture. So the church age, whenever you hear me speak about the church age, it is from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. The salutation to the seven representative churches is extended from God the Father, and he is referred to in verse 4 as him which is and which was and which is to come. It is also extended from God the Holy Spirit, who is designated by his sevenfold ministry and character at the end of verse 4. And then the salutation is also extended by the Lord Jesus Christ, who in verse 5 is called by three beautiful titles. He is called the faithful witness, which refers to his past function as prophet. He is called the first begotten of the dead, which refers to his present office as priest. And thirdly, he is referred to as the prince of the kings of earth. And that is a reference to his yet future position as king, king of kings. And those three titles respectively testify to the Lord's sinless suffering unto death, his victorious resurrection from the tomb of death, and his triumphant return. Also included in the salutation of the letter is a twofold salutation blessing. And this blessing is one of grace and of peace. Look at verse 4. Now, grace speaks of God's attitude toward the believer, while peace speaks of the relationship between God and the believer. You see, the result of God's grace in sending his only begotten beloved son to die in the sinner's place and the result of God's grace in drawing that sinner to his son in saving faith is the wonderful experience of God's peace. The peace which passes all understanding, the peace with God that only a forgiven, born-again sinner can have because of the fact that his sins have been forgiven. Now, it is quite remarkable, if you think about it, that in a book which deals with the very opposite of peace, I mean, you know, a book which deals with war and bloodshed and conflict and earthquakes and plagues and famines and carnage, unprecedented like we've never seen before, in a book like this, that God began this very book with the words grace and peace. That's quite remarkable. What does this tell us? Well, this tells us of the love of God. It tells us about a loving God who would much rather give grace and peace than he would send judgment. You know, it truly is not his will that any man should perish. 
And one reason that God gave the predictions of the book of Revelation is to warn mankind ahead of time what is awaiting those who reject him. He wants them to know, he wants men to know in no uncertain terms what their ultimate rejection will mean. So this book is a serious and it is a clear message of warning so that men and women, boys and girls, can choose God's offered grace and his peace instead of his wrath and judgment. Well, following a beautiful doxology in verses 5 and 6 in which John praises the Lord Jesus for loving us and for loosing us and for then lifting us, and I don't have time to explain that, but it is explained in Lesson 5. Following that doxology, John was just so overwhelmed after he gave those three wonderful titles for Christ that he just broke out in this doxology of praise. And then also following a very definite, wonderful promise of Christ's second coming, which we read in verse 7, and plus following John's own explanation for his banishment, on Patmos in verse 9, we are then told of John's Lord's Day experience with the resurrected Christ. Now, the first event which gained the apostles' attention, his full attention, as he was there in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, was the sound of a great voice as of a trumpet. That's what John tells us in verse 10. That's how he describes this voice as of a trumpet. And that voice said to him, I am Alpha and Omega. And then went on to instruct John to write in a book the things that he would see and then send them to the seven churches which are listed in verse 11. To the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Well, John turned to see the source of that great voice. And when he did, the vision before his eyes was absolutely so out of this world. It was so brilliantly glorious. It was so, as the kids would say, awesome that he literally fell at the Lord's feet as though dead. It tells us in verse 17. And then when he came about and could describe what he had seen, he wrote down, he tells us that the one he saw was like unto the Son of Man, standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. And here we don't have to speculate about what the seven golden candlesticks represent because we are told by Christ himself in verse 20 of chapter 1 that the seven golden candlesticks represent the seven churches of Asia Minor, which the Lord mentioned to John in verse 11. He spelled them out. Consequently, The vision symbolically speaks of Christ standing in the midst of his church. And then John describes the Lord for us by telling us that he was dressed in a garment that went down all the way to his feet. And he had a golden girdle around his chest. Now, although judges wore long garments, like the one described here, yet only kings wore a golden girdle or a golden sash around their chest. He described Christ's hair as being white, like wool and snow. And John said that his eyes were as a flame of fire, verse 14, and his feet were like unto fine brass. And his voice, he describes his voice again, this time as the sound of many waters, verse 15. And in his right hand he held seven stars, which again were interpreted for us in verse 20 by Christ himself to represent the seven angels of the seven churches. And then out of the Lord's mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which of course speaks of the word of God, and it tells us, John tells us that his face shined like the sun at its fullest strength, like the noonday sun. John's description of the glorified Christ of the Patmos vision tells us a number of significant truths about the Lord. For example, the title, the Son of Man, speaks of Christ's humanity as well as his Messiahship, because the Son of Man was an understood term for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Also, his attire denotes him not only as judge, but also as king. 
And his white hair, of course, speaks of his purity, but also of his eternality, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Eternal One. He is, in other words, deity. Actually, John's description here parallels the description of the Ancient of Days that we read about in Daniel 7.3. So we have another demonstration of the fact that Christ is God, that he is one with God. His description is the same as the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 is Jehovah God. Furthermore, the Lord's eyes are like fire, and his blazing bronze feet, um, both of these descriptions denote his role as authoritative judge. He is coming in judgment, and his two-edged sword speaks of the power of his word. His voice, like both a trumpet and as many waters, also speaks of his power and his authority. And then his shining countenance denotes that he is the light source of the church. He's standing in the midst of the church. He is the church's light, the light of the church. And then his possession of the seven stars of the seven churches in his right hand tells us that he is not only the power, the light source of the church, but he is the possessor of the church. The church belongs to him. And that, you see, is why he has the right to examine her as he does by way of his seven letters to the seven representative churches. You see, before presenting any message of judgment on the unbelieving, ungodly world, which the Lord does in chapter 6 to the end, well, 6 to 18, the Lord first calls his church to repentance. Because where must judgment begin? Judgment must begin at the house of God. 1 Peter 4.17 tells us. And this is what he does as he commends. Remember, he always gives the good news first to these churches. He First of all, he commends them and then he condemns and warns them and reproves each one of the seven representative types of churches in chapters 2 and 3. However, before John moves us into the contents of those two chapters, he recorded the words of the Lord to him after he had fallen at his feet. I think he just collapsed. He fainted in shock at his feet. So with the old apostle and his one-time dearest of earthly friends lying there at his feet, the Lord Jesus reached forth his right hand of power, that right hand that he held the seven representatives of the seven churches, and he took that same right hand and compassionately reached down to tenderly touch John. John, the one who had rested on his breast at the Last Supper, the one who perhaps of all his disciples understood the Lord the best. And as Jesus, the glorified Christ, did this, he said to John, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. This we find in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. These wonderful words. What the Lord was doing was giving John, and through John, he was giving all believers three reasons why John and consequently you and I have nothing to fear if we truly belong to Christ. The first reason is because the one in whom we have placed our trust is the creator God. He is the first and the last as he referred to himself here. He is, in other words, the giver of life, the creator, the giver of life. And therefore, John did not need to fear anything about life. His God is eternal God, and he is sovereignly in control of everything that happened in John's life. He was sovereignly in control of John's life, as he is in control of our lives. And secondly, John need not fear, because the one in whom he had placed his trust was he who had become dead. You know, he died on the cross, but he arose victorious over death and over the grave. And therefore, John did not need to fear death. 
And thirdly, because the one for whom Christ, uh, John was suffering banishment there on that island of Patmos was also the keeper of the keys of hell and death because he had purchased the keys to hell and death by his own shed blood and death, John didn't need to fear death uh, or eternity. In, in the Lord's resurrection, he won victory over death and hell for the believer. So John and, and all believers in Christ do not need to fear eternity. <clears throat> so if a believer doesn't need to fear anything in life because he's in the hands of the sovereign eternal creator God, and if he doesn't need to fear death because he's in the hands of the one who conquered death, and the grave, and if he doesn't need to fear eternity because he is in the care of the one who possesses the keys to release him forever from hell and death, then the conclusion is that the Christian just doesn't need to fear anything. Nothing at all. The only fear that the Christian should have is the fear of the Lord, and that's a reverential fear, and this is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge well following that wonderful news that John need not fear life death or eternity he was then instructed to write the things that he had seen his vision in chapter 1 and then the things which are which is the seven church letters and thirdly the things which shall be after the church this again refers to verse 19 and then the explanation for the seven golden candlesticks and the seven stars is given in verse 20. Well, beginning in chapter 2, we, in our study, then got into the second main section of our overall outline for the book of Revelation. And that is called, that section is entitled, The Possession of Jesus Christ. And we spent the remainder of our year, last year, discussing those seven church letters. Now, because we are almost out of time, I am simply going to explain what each of these seven letters represented, and then very briefly give a synopsis of each one and the stage in church history which it represented. The seven specific churches of Asia Minor were not just chosen at random. There were many churches in that first century in Asia Minor, but these seven were specifically chosen because of the particular situations and the struggles and the victories of these actual, literal, first century churches, Ephesus, Smyrna. They were also purposely chosen in the chronological order that we find them. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They were representative of churches which could be found in any century of the church age churches that had the same types of situations and struggles and successes that we find in these seven churches. Now I mentioned earlier that the number seven in the scripture speaks of completeness and therefore the number the seven churches were selected so as to symbolically speak of the entire church, the body of Christ, the entire church of the entire church age. Now what the Lord had to say in each letter was obviously, we know, not just written for that actual first century church congregation, although it of course applied to them as well. But it wasn't just written for them. They were a purposed, selective list of churches, and we know this because at the end of each letter, or near the end of each letter, the Lord gave the appeal that we all became very familiar with by the end of our study. And that appeal was, quote, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And we notice that in each case, the plural churches is used, even though the individual letter was addressed to a single Asia Minor church. So, the seven represent of the seven revelation churches were not only actual literal churches which existed in what is now modern day Turkey, but they represent the seven types of churches that would exist during any century of the church age. And the letters, these letters that the Lord wrote, he wrote 
for all churches of the entire church age. And then, too, although the Lord addressed each church as a whole, his message to the overcomer, the one who is truly born again, and remember, all churches have wheat and tares, all churches have true believers, and are oversown with those who are only professing believers. They do not really know the Lord Jesus Christ, but the overcomer is the truly born-again believer. His message to the overcomer in each letter is addressed to the individual. So we learned that just as there are Ephesian-type churches, in other words, churches which are very sound in their doctrine and very careful about their doctrine, and yet they've lost their first love for the Lord Jesus, there are also Ephesian-type Christians, or, in some cases, professing Christians, as we saw in the Church of the Laodiceans. Well, the most fascinating aspect of the seven churches, at least to me, is that they were also purposely chosen by the omniscient Christ in the sequential order that we find them in chapters 2 and 3 to prophetically foretell of the historical development of the church. In other words, each letter to each specific first century church describes describes the dominant characteristics of each of seven succeeding periods of church history. And only God could have done this. If ever you doubt the scripture, which you shouldn't do, but if you do, just look again at these seven church letters and remember only God, only Christ could have known the course of church history. Because from where John stood in history, he did not and could not possibly have known the the progress, the development of the church down through the corridors of church history. And he couldn't have known that this even was what the Lord was doing as he gave him these seven church letters. You see, John was living in the apostolic stage of church history, which is represented by the first church of Ephesus. However, as you and I stand today in the seventh and the final stage of church history, which is sad to say, the stage of Laodicean lukewarmness, we have the added benefit of seeing how church history has indeed gone through these seven stages, which very incredibly parallel the seven churches. Now, in our study of this, we gave six reasons back in lessons eight and nine why we interpret the seven churches in this prophetic manner. And you can review those on your own in those lessons. But one of the most obvious reasons, one of the six, and the one which I believe was given as a clue to support this teaching, a divine clue, comes from a look at the Greek names of the cities of these seven churches. And by way of the names of those seven selected churches, Christ was prophetically giving to us the history of the church. And the best way really to explain this is simply to tell you what each Greek city name means or to remind you for those of you who were with us as we looked at this and then explain how that name, the Greek name meaning, fits with actual church history. The first word or the first city for the first church, Ephesus, in the Greek language means desirable. Well, the early church, the apostolic church, the church that was founded by the apostles, was so pure in its doctrine and it was so careful to keep out heretics and false teachings that this church was desirable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Ephesus means. Smyrna, the next church, chronologically, and the name Smyrna that's uh, in Greek means it comes from the word for myrrh or bitter. And the interesting thing about myrrh, and by the way, we get the word martyr from myrrh, the interesting thing about myrrh is that it has to be crushed before it will give forth its beautiful fragrance. And the more it is crushed, the more fragrant it becomes. Well, Smyrna represents the next stage in church history. 
the crushed uh, church following the apostolic stage of church history which ended of course when the last apostle died and that apostle was John uh, then came the persecuted church of course there's a little bit of an overlapping here because actually the apostolic church was also persecuted but they found that the more Christians were crushed and martyred during the first two centuries the more the world caught the fragrance of their faith and their love for Christ. They saw that these people had something worth dying for, which meant that they also had something worth living for. And as a consequence, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And the church grew greatly. Even though many were being killed, the church was growing during this stage. And it had a great influence on the world, which is, you know, what the church should have an influence, a positive influence on the world instead of the world having an influence on the church. So the church was fragrant like myrrh to the Lord Jesus. And he actually had nothing of condemnation to say to this church. So Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, from which we get the word martyr. And this was the persecuted stage in church history. Following Smyrna came the church at Pergamos, and the word Pergamos in Greek is a compound word, and it means thoroughly married. And this is exactly what happened to the church, sad to say, in the third stage of its development. When the Emperor Constantine came into power over the Roman Empire, he married the church and the state. He ended the persecution, but he brought paganism into the church to appeal to the heathens. So he married the church and the state, and this was the stage of the state church. The consequence was that this was a time of very serious doctrinal compromise, which resulted in a a decrease in true spirituality and an increase in worldliness. The church, you know, is never to be unequally yoked with the world. But this is what happened. The Lord, remember, admonished this church for having tolerated the false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, both of which are anti-scriptural worldly teachings. So Pergamos represented the time in history from 313 when Constantine came to the throne to 590 A.D. And that's the time of the state church. Thyatira, the fourth church to which Christ addressed a letter, has, again, a compound meaning. It's a compound word. It's a name which means continual sacrifice. And we went into some great detail to explain how this perfectly fits the teaching, the false teaching, of transubstantiation. The teaching of the Catholic Church that the bread and the wine literally become the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he is continually therefore sacrificed. It also shows how the mass of the Catholic Church continually sacrifices its victim, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by doing so puts him to an open shame. During this period, Catholicism dominated Christendom. Uh, The years were 590 to 517 A.D. So this sequence of churches and their corresponding Greek names ties in amazingly. Only God could do this with what actually happened in, in church history. The church which follows Thyatira is Sardis. And the name Sardis, again literally means those escaping compound words sardis those escaping and once again this paralleled actual church history for this is the church which represents the reformation church stage of history the the protestant church which officially began in 1517 when martin luther nailed his 95 thesis to the church door at wittenberg These were those who escaped from the dominance of Catholicism. Well, following Sardis came the Lord's letter written to the congregation at Philadelphia. A Greek word, a compound word, which means brotherly love. And the Philadelphia church represents the era of church history when brotherly love 
dominated. This was the mission-minded church because it was their love which caused Christians to take the Great Commission seriously. And the world was launched into the tremendous missionary stage of the church. Most mission movements began during this time in church history. It was a wonderful time. And again, we find that the Lord Jesus had nothing of condemnation to say to this church, which was only true of one other church, the persecuted church of Smyrna. Only to Philadelphia and Smyrna did the Lord have not one word of condemnation to say. Well, the last church, he had nothing good to say, not one word of commendation, and that was the church of the Laodiceans. Notice it wasn't, it isn't the church of Christ, it is the church of the Laodiceans. This church stands for the apostate church. The word in Greek means the people rule, the people speak. They speak instead of Christ. They rule instead of Christ. So this is the humanistic church. Christ is actually seen on the outside of this church, knocking for entrance. It's literally the church of the Laodiceans. It's the church which the Lord called lukewarm, the church which makes him so sick that he actually said he would spew it out of his mouth. And, of course, at the rapture of the true church, this is exactly what he'll do because this church will continue on into the time of the tribulation. This church and all the unsaved members of all the other types of churches, those who are professing Christians only and not true overcomers, they will go into the tribulation and become part of the one-world apostate church of the end times. Well... There was a whole lot more that we learned about each of the seven churches, but we can't possibly review all of that again or we'd be another whole year in studying them. They were very, very beneficial to study, not only for a greater knowledge of church history, which is very important in itself because it opens our eyes to see how how many of the traditions and the rituals and the practices and the heresies have come about within greater Christendom and also to see how we have gotten to where we are today as we live in a time when most churches do not even proclaim the true gospel message. But it is also beneficial, church history is, for us to do, or these seven church letters were beneficial because they enabled us to do an examination of the church that we belong to and to see what kind of church it is and whether we need to stay in it or not. Something we need to pray about, you know, it's between us and the Lord and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But to examine our local church, and even more importantly, these churches were beneficial because they enabled us to do a self-examination of ourselves in order to determine what kind of a Christian we are. For us today where we live, which is still in the church age. This second section of Revelation really is the most practical section of the book because it's the section which applies most directly to our own lives. I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where we are living. So if you did miss our study of the seven churches, I would recommend that you do get the tapes or the book and study it on your own. Now, next week, we will begin to look at the third and the final section of the outline for the book of Revelation, the program of Jesus Christ, as we're going to open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, look at verses 1 and 2, and see what occurred next to the Apostle John, and see how his experience may very well be a prophetic clue as to the timing of of the rapture of the church in relationship to the tribulation period. So be here. God bless you.